In this episode of Waterfront, I'm going to be taking a trip to Oxfordshire to explore how canals act as essential green pathways for much of our wildlife in a landscape that is increasingly broken up by roads and railways. To help me on my journey, I'll be joined by two wildlife experts who, we'll discover, are the kind of men who get excited by Otterpoo. Welcome to the Waterfront Podcast, brought to you by the Canal and River Trust and presented by the inimitable David Bramwell. Well, as you can hear, I'm pretty close to a railway line. I'm also standing outside the plough in Oxford, or just the outskirts of Oxford in Wolvercote. And I'm looking forward to meeting Hugh Warwick and Mark Robinson from the Canal and River Trust, who's come all the way here from Warwickshire. I'm going to go and say hello. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, good, after, good afternoon you, Would you, you like David? to introduce hello, yourselves? Um, I am Hugh Warwick, an author and ecologist with a particular fondness for hedgehogs. Which includes a tattoo. Which includes just the one tattoo of a hedgehog and an increasing number of tattoos I'm sure will come uh, as my midlife crisis creeps on into old age. Can we, can uh, we see the tattoo you for, see, for, the, it, for the listeners? Yes, no, no, show, it's really important. You see, we'll spot this one first, which is not a Oh, that's hedgehog. a frog. No, it's not a frog. Oh, sorry, it's, it's a, a toad? toad, for goodness sake. Uh, and there we go, my hedgehog. And there's the hedgehog. Third, yes. Mark, any unusual tattoos, canal-related? I... No, I don't have a tattoo, thank you. Um, but you beat me to it. I was going to ask you to, to bear all and, and show his tattoo, but I was slightly worried where it was going to be, but quite relieved to see it on the ankle. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm from the Canal and River Trust uh, and the ecologist that uh, looks after a lot of the wildlife that we'll be looking at talking about. And Hugh, do you want to tell us why you chose this spot here and where we are? The um, Oxford Canal is just there, I mean, just across That's this it. bit of meadow. Uh, one boat visible there, another one's just chugged past it. But then beyond those railings, we've got a railway line. And um, then just further, and we hit the A34, we'll go underneath the A34, and the, I think it's the A40. And so you've got two really, really busy roads. In this area, you've got the roads and the railways acting largely as barriers for wildlife's ability to move. And you've got the canal with the potential to provide a corridor for wildlife to move into the city of Oxford to allow that connectivity between the outskirts and the inside of it. And that's the, the real beauty of some of these lines in our line, well, as I call them, a linescape. Being in Oxford, there, there are some examples of unique um, human life, isn't there? And, and just behind us, a gentleman sporting a monocle. And I don't think you'd see that anywhere else apart from Oxford, maybe Cambridge. And a rather dashing beard. And a very dashing <laughs> beard. Great, here we go. <laughs> uh, we, we have some otter spray down here. You're kidding. No, here we go. Otter, what do you call it? Otter spray. Otter sprained. Sprained. Um, what does sprained mean? Essentially, otters are territorial animals. Um, they travel over large distances and they want to tell neighbouring otters, hey, this is my territory, keep out. And the best way they can do that is to leave the scent marks on prominent structures. Here we're under the bridge, you can probably hear the echo. Um, and the reason they do it under the bridge is because it's protected from the rain and the environment, so it probably lasts ten times longer than they, if they did it just a couple of metres away where it got rained on. And if we get down... Well, I was say, we need to have a sniff of this. We yeah, really absolutely. do. And people say it smells like a good job and coffee or, you know, it, it's not unpleasant like perhaps a mink, which is a bit more acrid. And you... Yeah, that smells, smells like otter. Um, it's quite old, so there's not a, a lot of scent to it, but it's... 
Oh, yes, I'm getting something slightly sweet. Yeah. It's not unpleasant. So excuse us, we're just smelling um, <laughs> okay. otterpoo. Let me have a sniff. I've got a, story. I've got a story to tell you about otterpoo. You see, a while ago, I was writing a book called The Beauty and the Beast. In that, I went and met an otter expert, and she was convincing, trying to convince me that otters were as amazing as hedgehogs. And uh, we had gone out looking for at least otterpoo and we had failed to find any. So um, yeah, we were very disappointed about that. We found a lot of footprints. And um, about a couple of weeks later, I got this uh, jiffy bag envelope, came through the post. And inside it, uh, there was a, a cardboard box, which is probably a jewelry box that had once held maybe you know, a necklace or something. And on it was drawn very, a lovely picture of an otter with the words, sniff me. And so I just thought, I opened that up, and inside lots of cotton wool, a plastic bag filled with this dried powder. So I paused, and then I took this really great big sniff, because I've been told how this stuff smells amazing. If anybody sends you dried, powdered <laughs> otter feces through the post, don't do that. <laughs> I was sneezing otter poo out of my nose for about the next five minutes. It was absolutely... Anyway, I, I, Next sniff was a much gentler sniff, and it does. It's like this, that slightly sweet, jasmine-y mm. scent. Mm. Something yes. utterly unexpected from the back end of an otter. I, it, it does worry me, actually, as sort of bending down sniffing this, because ecologists have this kind of uh, sort of poor sort of uh, image of, of, of sniffing animal dung and picking it up, yeah, yeah. And, and here we are, just um, <laughs> fulfilling that image, I think, that cliché. It's interesting because we're talking, you know, today about, you know, landscapes and, and habitat corridors. And this is actually a bridge over the habitat corridor. And this is providing, you know, habitat for wildlife. And, you know, you think of the consequences of the canal not being there and the otter or the kingfisher from a nearby lake or pond trying to get past, you know, the road. The, the, the chances of mortality are quite high. So those, those canals are, are passing under, giving safe passage to a whole host of different wildlife that they are bridging areas which have never been bridged before. Before the 18th century, end of the 18th century, when they started to become um, popular, you had water catchment areas which fed down in one line, down gravity-driven, and another one on the other side of a hill, and there the twain do meet. Mm. But the, the, the capacity of the canal was to provide a point of connection across these, which has had fantastic consequences for the ability to wildlife to move. We do see that with, with species like bats, which would have before would have probably stayed within catchment areas, now travelling between catchment areas. Is it Curzon Street or Curzon Road in Birmingham, one of the busiest roads in the country? Oh, and there's a yeah. tunnel underneath it, yeah. which is a canal tunnel, and the bats are flying underneath the busiest, one of the busiest roads in the country safely because they are, have got this avenue provided by the canals. In fact, it's not just a, a single road, really. It passes on under you know, quite a busy section of, of multiple roads under Birmingham. Um, and you know, to try and think of a, a small 10-gram um, bat trying to fly over the roads and, and not get hit by the busy traffic um, would probably be almost impossible. So, hey, if you look along here, right, so we've got, on this side, we are on... This is what I learned. We're on the on-side of the canal. We've got the towpath, and that's the off-side of the canal. And you can see how the off-side is, is wild. 
I mean, that's as much like a beautiful bit of bucolic river as you're ever going to get, a whole bunch of willows actually, I say leaning, toppling into the, into the, into the water. This, this habitat is fantastic because, you know, you can see there's a mallard in there and I saw a moorhen earlier. And, you know, on some of our canals where we haven't got the offside vegetation, you don't see that many moorhens because they haven't got that nesting habitat, you know, because they just need something on the offside which provides them a little bit of cover. One of the issues is that, that boaters like a nice hard side against which they can moor their boats mm. easily um, but also it stops things you know, the, the banks degrading and falling in but it, it's harder for wildlife then to utilize the banks so the water voles the insects and um, you don't have the capacity to sort of burrow into the bank but this seems quite organic i think in the past we we had much more emphasis on doing sort of uh quick and and over-engineered repairs where we would just knock a load of piles in and perhaps not think about it. But now we give a lot more thought, and we have done, you know, over the last decade, about trying to, as you say, create this soft habitat that's good for, for plants and then that has a knock-on effect to, you know, pollinators, dragonflies, uh, good for water voles. I don't, are there any? Are there any? I want to look and see. So we're, we're at a lock, the first lock we've come across on a walk up the canal. And what amazed me was one of the features was you've got various bits of wildlife using the lock beams. And I don't know, I, are there any leafcutter bees using these beams as a nest? And it was, it was one of my, the great thrills of my, my um, canal induction was discovering that the, the beams which are sort of fragmenting the water by stopping the water running, um, creating the ability to move up and down uh, the levels uh, were being Un, not undermined, but used, utilised by these amazing solitary bees, which go and cut bits of leaves and bring them in and fly them in to, to feather their nest. You can see that it's, I mean, it's an oak uh, top beam that we're looking at, and you can see there's all these fissures where the wood has dried um, and produced these lovely, lovely cracks, and you can see the spider's webs that are sort of around making these funnels for the spiders to live in. But there's also you know, quite deep cracks that, that, as Hugh said, you'll get leaf cutter bees, solitary bees. And, and what's fascinating is you'll get this whole ecology around the beam and you'll get these leaf cutters. You'll see them every, every so often flying with a bit of leaf rolled up, holding it, you know, between their, their, their six legs. They'll disappear into the hole about... 20 seconds, 30 seconds, they'll come back out. And then you'll see this parasitic oh, yes. solitary bee <laughs> nip in, lay its egg in the, uh, in the tube with the leafcutter's bee's eggs, and it's a parasite. And you've got this whole ecology that, that most people probably don't even notice, and it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, we've got, we've got one species of honeybee and 20 or so species of bumblebee but there's 220 or more species mm. of solitary bee. And so all the things you see buzzing around the place, you go, ah, oh, it's just a bee or a wasp or whatever, and you don't pay any attention to it. It could be one of so many hundred different species. And how weird is it to cut a piece of leaf, fly 100 metres with it, rolled up between your legs and stuff it in a hole in a, in a beam and lay your egg in it? You know, you look around at some of the plants and, and you can see these distinctive uh, cut marks where the, the leaf cutter bees have been, have been cutting out the, the shape. Always good to look for on lock beams.
lines were we heading to, Hugh? Was it up to a bridge? Well, I was aiming for, um, I'm not sure which we hit first, whether it's the A34 or the A40. And it was just to get that idea of the different linear features we've got in the landscape and how they all have a different impact on wildlife's ability to thrive. The roads obviously are this potentially enormous barrier to wildlife. And then sort of running through the landscape, you have this line, this linear feature um, of the canal, which provides uh, a, a respite and an avenue connecting to, you know, parts of our countryside, something which is, which is so valuable because we are uh, you know, fragmenting the landscape into ever smaller pieces. So we need to look for the lines which are good for connection to allow nature to be able to cope. Uh, yeah, I'm Caroline Thurston. I live on Red Wing. And I'm Jan Stevens, and I live on Natasha. And so, what, yeah. what, what kind of wildlife do you come across? <laughs> Lots, Lots of different pieces, yeah. yeah. Foxes, yeah. Deer. That's Lots all. of shrews and, uh, yeah. shrews and otters. voles. Lots of otters around the yeah. corner. And the otters do swim up and down here as well, which is really in there. You yeah. can see where they've been. They eat normally and they scale off their fish as well, so it's all right. And we have yeah. some barking deer in the yeah. uh, wooded area as well. down the lane. Yeah, the mount. Great, thank you. Okay. <laughs> have a good day. Thanks. We have been walking through a quiet, very bucolic environment from Wolvercote. And as we've walked out of Oxford, we're now hitting one of the major roads which um, circles Oxford. And you begin to see the value of this line providing an access route into the city. Because if we'd had this barrier at ground level, which we're now going to be going underneath, it would have provided a complete block for so much wildlife to be able to move into the city. And yeah, the canal, the canal allows it. That my book, Landscapes, began with actually Professor Sir John Lawton's report on making space for nature, in which he says, yes, we need bigger areas for wildlife protection and we need better quality areas of wildlife protection and we need more of them. But the principal thing he asserted is the ones we've got need to be joined up. And that's where those linear features become so crucial. So whether it is the verges of you know, the hideous roads above us or it's the edges of the canals or the canals themselves, we need those points of connectivity to be managed sensitively. And then possibly there is a chance of being able to have real wildlife next to web around us. So yeah, these lines, these canals are absolutely crucial as part of that. What secret lives the woods at night The birds in flight Swallow the day Swallow the day Chaps, we're just about to reach the bridge where we first came down to start our walk along the canal. And um, the plough is now a stone's throw away. It's lunchtime. And I think, Hugh, it's your round, isn't it? No, no, I bought the coffee. I wasn't there for the coffee. Yeah, well, and you're the one with the microphone. And it's actually written in the contract that the one with the microphone buys the beer. Absolutely. It's not in my contract. Uh, that's the one we signed, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. So two against one. Hang on a minute, you signed the contract. <laughs> yeah, he said he'd pay. This Waterfront podcast was produced by David Bramwell with music by Oddfellows Casino. It was a Smoke Creatives production for the Canal and River Trust. If you like the Waterfront podcast, please leave a review for us on iTunes. Winding through 2,000 miles of beautiful countryside and vibrant cities, our unique network of canals and rivers offer vital havens for people and nature alike, because everyone deserves a place to escape. 
visit canalrivertrust.org.uk forward slash friend to become a friend of the Trust and receive a wealth of benefits, discounts and the beautifully produced Waterfront magazine.